HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Already getting grimaces from uh, Aran Goyoaga. Is that how you say it? Yes. Perfect. Okay, I, I did pretty good. Um, also known as, and you're gonna, you're gonna have to pronounce your your blog's name so I don't get it wrong. Okay, I have to uh, make a confession. Yes. I'm not French. Ah. <laughs> I'm Basque from the Spanish side, so my French is very bad. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's better than mine. <laughs> trust me. So canel et vanille. Canelle et vanille. That's terrible, but um, Canelle Vanille is how most Americans say it. Yeah. <laughs> and how do most Americans say your name? Aaron. Aaron. But in Basque is Aran. Excellent. So, Basque country. Yes. Um, where is it? I mean, it's in Spain, but what region of Spain? Well, the Basque country is actually um, it's a kind of a nation without a state. Um, well, some people might kill me if I say that. But it's, how I feel. it's like it's like the Sicily of Spain. Yeah, it's um, there are seven provinces, and four of them are in Spain, and three are in France. And there's a common language uh, called Basque, and the Spanish Basque have a Spanish accent, and the French Basque have a French accent. So, um, but it's the same language. Yeah. So, uh, is it northern? Spain? It's northern Spain. So it's in the Pyrenees, and it's. Uh, yeah, Spain is in the south and France is in the north. Wow, such a and it has a, the Atlantic side um, to the west, I guess, northwest. Yeah, so the terrain, the, the, the I mean, flora uh, must be beautiful. Yeah, it's and beautiful. Stunning. And when people think of Spain, they always think of uh, south of Spain and um, Mediterranean side of Spain. But it's very different. It kind of looks like Ireland or uh, very green. The north of Spain is very green. Um, there's a lot of sheep and apple trees and a lot of, lot of strawberries. Yes, yeah. sheep is you know our our big thing, and um, yeah, it's just very uh, pastoral. It's modern. The cities are modern, but um, the countryside is pastoral, and 
uh, bucolic. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, uh, especially in New York, that cook or know the food scene, uh, know Basque Country, maybe. Is St. Sebastian in Basque Country? Yes. Yeah, and like, so Mugaritz and... Uh, yes, Mugaritz. Berta, Berta, what is his name? Berta Sugi. Uh, Berasategui? Yeah. Berasategui. Yeah. Uh, Aduriz, who is the chef of Mugaritz. Um, Arzak, who is like the godfather of them all. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's many. I think I could be wrong, but I heard a statistic once that said that San Sebastian or San Sebastian is the um, the city in the world with most uh, Michelin star restaurants per capita. Um, and it kind of, if that's true, which it wouldn't surprise me, it very it very much reflects the Basque. Um, love of food. Yeah, but that that's very modern takes on traditional Basque cuisine, those yes, restaurants yes. that we mentioned. Um, what is traditional Basque cuisine? I know, like, uh, what, coal grilling, like sheep, you said, and sheep's yes. cheese. How do you say the one that starts with an I-D? Idiazabal. Yeah, I'm not going to be able yeah. to do that one. The Idiazabal is in the uh, Spanish side, and if you go to the French side, they have Osawirati, which oh, is, uh, yeah, yeah, they're kind of similar. Um, and uh, so Basque food is very simple. Uh, there aren't a lot of spices um, or actually a lot of herbs either. So it's very much um, whatever, a lot of fish, uh, simply prepared, but ingredients are very, the quality of the ingredients is amazing. Um, we have a lot of vegetables, uh, a lot of seafood. There's a big uh, tradition of fishing, even whale fishing uh, back in the day. And um, so it's a lot of garlic and peppers and tomatoes, um, olive oil, and fruits and vegetables. Meat too, but I would say we're more of a fish. Yeah. yeah well, one of my eating. favorite dishes, not just of Basque Country or Spain or Europe, is... Uh, um, cod pil pil or bacalao pil pil um, mm-hmm. which is you know a cod dish with the sauce emulsified with garlic and it's just stunning it's just it's, but it's so simple but it's so technique driven and uh, you were telling me before that your mother has it but can't teach it to anybody yes it's not that she doesn't want to but <laughs> she tries and it's perhaps because she wasn't she's not scientific about it she doesn't know the science behind it um, it's just a matter of having been doing it for years um, and it's getting, for those who don't know, bacalao al pilpil is um, dehydrated cod that is reconstituted and then um, slowly cooked in olive oil in a way, but it has to be shaken a little bit. So all the um, gelatin of the fish comes out and it emulsifies the, the olive oil. There's a lot of olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes this thick, garlicky, olive oily sauce that's absolutely amazing but it tends to break very easily. So it's all about the temperature of the oil, how much you shake it, the pan they using the pan has to be able to maintain heat evenly. So the the type of pan that you use is important. So it's a, a bunch of things. So I would say basque cooking is very simple, but there is a technique and a perfection like even cooking vegetables not too raw, not too soft. So it's like a perfect, you know. Yeah. Um and I think people take pride in knowing how to cook. Oh, completely. Things. And if these things sound too heavy with all the oil, you, you obviously have chocolate and cider too to wash it down, which is one of my favorite wines. Yeah, chocolate is, um, we actually had it at my, my wedding. It was the, our, kind of our um, 
appetizer wine and all the americans that came they were like i need to take that home with me it's like adult soda yeah yeah it's it's just uh, (laughs) mind-blowingly good yeah um so with all this cuisine with all this knowledge you grew up in a family that was actually pastry chefs and farmers yes Uh, so you must have been surrounded by just amazing cuisine yes it was very simple our um i mean obviously being in a pastry shop you know there was a lot of pastry technique but the food the actual everyday food that we ate was very simple but it was very important the quality of everything that we got my my grandfather loved um he loved caviar and he loved angulas which are baby eels and they're very expensive and very hard you know people have to go and i don't know it's not really fish but you have to go and catch them yourself and um so he was very um there's a word i can't think of it he's He's, he had a very refined palate, but the foods were simple. Um, so I, I learned a lot by watching my grandfather just describe food and cook it and ask my grandmother to cook it a certain way. <clears throat> and then my um, grandparents on my dad's side, jeez, um, I get emotional when I talk about <laughs> this. Um, they were farmers, so... Um, so they grew their own food and they raised animals and... You know, I learned from them. Yeah, well, I mean, so. it's it's so nice to see you be emotional and see that there is more than just a, a you know palatable connection. I mean, there's something stronger to the story. It, yeah, their their roots, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was a point you went to business school. We're going to gloss over that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very glamorous. Yeah. Uh, and you moved to New York to pursue what? I moved to Colorado, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, it's a kind of a long story but when I was 16 uh, I spent a year in Colorado with a family as an exchange student and that's how my English people you know I do have a little bit of an accent but you know it's not so strong Spanish and um, so anyway I met a boy through that family and uh, his name's Chad (laughs) (laughs) and we ended up getting married after I graduated from college and so he was living in Colorado and I moved to Colorado to be with him and uh, I had just finished my master's in business, and I was working in marketing and a couple of companies, big companies, and uh, but I was not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say I wasn't very happy. No, I just was terrible. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, I've always been a hard worker, and when I'm passionate about something, I just don't give up. But I could just go, I could clock out at 4 o'clock and go home happy, and that's not me, you know? And I knew that was not for me. And so... Um, Chad was moved. We, he found a job in Florida, and so he moved. And that's when I decided. I said, you know, I really need to pursue this food thing that I love so much um, at another level and make it a profession. So I enrolled in culinary school in Florida, and I started working in um, a couple of fine dining restaurants in Palm Beach. And um, then I ended up at the Ritz Carlton in pastry for three years until I had a baby, <laughs> and then I had to stop. <laughs> It, it's amazing, though, uh, that transition. Did it feel like work or did it feel Never. innate? Yeah, it was. When I think about it, it was it was so much fun. And I, I mean, it was a lot of work because I was going to school in the mornings and working full time at nights. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have a I didn't have a Christmas or holiday off with my family for five years. And um, but I never and you know, you know how it is yeah. in the professional kitchen. 
but it never felt like there was an alternative for me. That's what I wanted to yeah. do. Do you, st- do you still, when holidays happen, do you still like, we get this one off? Because <laughs> every once in a while I'm like, Labor Day? Columbus Day? You get these things off? <laughs> well, it's been, how many years? It's been seven years. Yeah, so yeah. I've got, I'm accustomed <laughs> to having holidays. But um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, I just couldn't imagine being a mother and having crazy, you know, crazy hours. And so I stopped and... Um, like we were talking earlier, you stop working in a professional kitchen, but you, you find yourself looking for things to do that remind you of those days. And, and then I somehow somebody sent me a link to a blog, and, and I didn't know what blogs were. I said, what is this thing? that It's a website, and you, know, you can comment, and it's very interactive. And I, I thought, I can do that. That would be something fun to do, and my family in the Basque Country can follow me, and you know, we can share recipes. And so it started like that. And my son was 18 months, and um, it just somehow something that I thought it was just going to be occasional, it became kind of like I was almost like setting my own schedule yeah. to, okay, I'm going to test these recipes and, you know, blog about it. And it, I was, so I, I don't want to make it sound like it was just all fun and games. I became kind of disciplined about the blog, and, and I wanted to share these things, but I, it was never, it was never a moneymaker. I didn't even know that you could make money from a blog. And uh, or a book or anything. I mean, it was just a f- something to do in the kitchen, and then it just you know took off from there. But um, yeah, where did the term canela vanille uh, originate? In you know for for this blog? Yeah, it was funny because even before I um, I was thinking of a blog, I um, I was thinking if I ever have a business, what would I name it? Because I started to, it was that time that I was like, I need to do something on my own, something food related, but I wasn't sure what. And then I thought of the name cinnamon and vanilla, because those were kind of the smells of my youth and pastry related. And, um, and that's what I, where my interest was at the time. And so that's, it just came to me one day. I remember it's just, okay, I, I'm just going to, Whatever it is, it's going to be canela vanilla. So, um, and that's what it became when I when I started the blog. That's the name I used. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about what the blog became after you found out you were gluten intolerant and more so. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. We support Heritage Radio Network because all you folks listening are so genuine, so dedicated to serious food, so much a part of what this country needs to strive to become. People like you are few and far between, and it's obvious to us at Fairway that we've got to stick together. Our desire is that the word gets out about Heritage Radio Network in its support for serious food, foodstuffs that offer memorability and, and timelessness, authenticity and, and rarefied quality. This country grew too fast to have established any degree of a heritage. Europe had centuries to develop one. America has not. Heritage Radio Network serves to hasten the evolution of a society that often appears coarse and uninterested. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com.
Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Aaron Aran. Aran. <laughs> Aran. <laughs> Goyaga. Goyaga. Um, Vanille. Yes. It was a blog that you had started uh, to kind of share your past, uh, your history, recipes with family and friends. Um, but it, it took a turn uh, and it became more specific as to what type of recipes. Because at a point in your life, after having your first child, you found out you were gluten-free. Well, not gluten-free, intolerant. Yeah. Well, what happened was when I was pregnant with my first child, I developed um, this thyroid condition called Hashimoto's. And it's basically an autoimmune thyroid disease. And I had been reading about um, the benefits of uh, just a hypoallergenic, gluten-free, dairy-free diet and how it would help it. And for a while, um, I tried it, but I never really had uh, terrible symptoms of any kind. It was just a subclinical thyroid disease, they called it. So I never even really pursued that um, aspect of it until I was pregnant with my daughter my, you know, three years later, um, and I started to have really bad vertigo attacks. And um, basically, I was bedridden for days. You know, I lost uh, hearing in one ear. It was like a constant ringing in the ear, and then it would follow by vertigo and vomiting. And just, um, I thought at one point I had MS or something because um, I had tingling in my legs and arms, and it was just really bad. And I went to doctors, and nobody was able to help me. Until I found um, a doctor's blog that would talk about um, vertigo and gluten intolerance and autoimmune diseases. And, um, you know, I was like, you know, that kind of makes sense because, you know, the gluten thing had been in the back of my mind for a couple of years. And um, so I, I emailed him. It was a doctor who was out of state. And um, I asked him, do you talk to people that are in different states? And he said, sure, I'll, I'll talk to you. And anyhow, long story short, he um, tested me for a bunch of different things. And it turned out that I had a genetic gluten intolerance condition that he said um, probably stress and pregnancy and other things just um, triggered it and finally turned into, you know, it developed symptoms. Um, and then I had anemia and really bad uh, vitamin B12 and D deficiencies and H. pylori bacterial infection. I mean, all kinds of yeah. stuff. How long did it actually take you to arrive at that diagnosis? When you first had the symptoms? It was know. probably nine months. Wow. Yeah, it was a long time yeah. when you had... Uh, and I gave birth and I thought, well, maybe, you know, this will go away. Yeah. It's a pregnancy thing, but it didn't. And it actually got worse. But it makes you wonder how many people are walking around today with uh, gluten intolerances or other problems that go mm -hmm. undiagnosed because there's no one clear-cut path to how it happens. Yeah. Yeah, and it's there's many inflammatory diseases that are maybe gluten is not the original problem. It can be just a immune suppression, stress, but then when you add, uh, you know, anything that's allergenic, it just really magnifies the problem. Yeah. And so when I first was diagnosed with a gluten intolerance, I actually had to go on a kind of a specific carbohydrate diet of no grains and no dairy and no sugar and. I mean, it was really, really strict for like eight, nine months. And hard for a pastry chef. <laughs> Very hard. It was, I thought, I mean, can I do, can I keep doing this? Yeah. Or, um, but because I started feeling well right away, I thought, you know, 
this is not just some fad. This is really helping me. Plus, and, uh, uh, one of your children ended up having. Well, um, yes. Right after that, my doctor said, you know, because you this is a genetic, um, you should probably test your. My son was three years old, so I was able to test him. And it turned out that he also had, um, he tested positive for gluten intolerance. And he, he never really had any major symptoms, but I would find that occasionally he would have headaches and he would get sick and, you know, like subtle things that you can't pinpoint what it is. And so um, we, you know, he followed my diet and my daughter was a baby. She was only six months old, but um, we never tested her, but, you know, because me and John have it, then we thought Miran will probably have it as well. And so we all kind of um, just took on this new eating habit, you know, an eating way. And um, it's funny because I was telling Michael earlier that my husband was actually into <laughs> sourdough making and bread baking at the time. And uh, it was a big shock for him that he had to stop um, doing all these things and experimenting. Uh, well, when you guys go away. Yeah, when, we, so when we go away to the vacuum <laughs> tree, that's when he uh, yeah. takes over the kitchen. Uh, so, I mean, shifting your whole diet, you know, to conform to this new allergen that you have um, eliminates a lot of things from, you know, your repertoire. What things have gluten in it that would you wouldn't expect? Because people know bread, people know pasta. Well, there's a lot of... Um Prepackaged stuff, and we never really buy prepackaged things. And you know, not to sound like a total snob, but yeah, it's true. You're safe here at Harris. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. But when you go out to eat, that can become a problem if you don't. If you go to places that you don't really trust, you know, you don't know. Um, soy sauce is a big one, and uh, there's you know there's uh, weed-free soy sauces but most places use uh weed-based soy sauces so that was a big one even curry paste that are that you buy already made um in cans those have wheat um you know like there were cereal that i found out that were sweetened with barley malt and that has barley has gluten in it you know things little things like that that you really have to check um, all the ingredients yeah. that you think. So, I mean, you, you had to change your pantry. You know, uh, a lot of people think, well, just get xanthan gum and that, that, that's enough non-gluten things that it binds everything together. But, I mean, new flowers, nut flowers like almond and chestnut and hazelnut, uh, amaranth, buckwheat, chestnut, well, I said chestnut, chia seeds. There, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that work as what binders and um, alternative flowers to make things that you already knew. Yeah, and I actually, um, I mean, maybe because being a pastry chef, it's kind of in me, what I love to do is to experiment. Um, it would never felt difficult to me. Um, I knew what a specific product, I knew, I knew what, the, I, what result I wanted, and... I started to learn a little bit about the different flowers and just quickly I I knew I, I just had a kind of intuition about how to adapt recipes and I find that it's very easy actually to to make a gluten containing um, recipe into a gluten free one except I'm not talking about bread making but yeah. I'm talking about pastry um, you know quick breads and muffins and cookies and uh, tart doughs yeah. I, I don't see it's I don't feel it's that difficult and it, it it looks like it's easy in in, in your new book uh your your first book as well uh, small plates and sweet treats out by little brown it's out now too um yeah on the 23rd Excellent. of october yeah. um what's so cool about it is 
like you don't lose those things that you care about. There, there are. There's actually a seeded bread recipe in there. Uh, muffins, scones, um, you know, so many things that like cookies, donuts, tarts, things that people think have gluten that are easily changed into a gluten-free and amazing-looking dessert. Because I don't want to uh, skip over the fact, even though we might not get to talk about it, you are your own stylist, prop stylist, photographer. Holy crap. <laughs> That's amazing. I enjoy doing that. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It takes it takes a very special person, and you know, like you say, dedicated uh, worker and special eye as well. Uh, yeah. Well, if you love something, I don't think it feels ever like work, right? Yeah. And you know that, Michael. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I um, I never. But am I, I don't know. Should I talk about? Being Whatever a stylist, okay. To. Well, let, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the styling and photography because I never really picked up a camera until I mean I did pick up cameras. That's not true, but I never really knew anything about photography, um, about how to use a camera, about light. I didn't know any of those things until I really started um, photographing for the blog. My father and my brother are both painters, and there was a lot of painting and a lot of. Uh, painting books and art books in my house all the time and we used to go to exhibits all the time so I think I had a visual eye or obviously visual I already had a, <laughs> I already had a an eye for for what were beautiful things but I just didn't have the tools maybe um to express and I didn't even know the food was going to be my medium it was just I just slowly learned that so as soon as I started the blog I realized that honing those photography skills was very important yeah do you see do you see that progression from your first post in 08 to oh. how you photograph I encourage style everyone to go to my first post with lemon bars that was photographed in four o'clock sunday <laughs> florida hot sun yeah. <laughs> with shadows no diffusion diffusion it yeah. was a beautiful thing <laughs> You also didn't lose your heritage uh, of cuisine in this book, too, because there are things like spicy fish stews, um, then influences from friends and families, too, like that shepherd's pie uh, parmentier um, and tortilla. Yes, tortilla has to be in the book. Can we talk about tortilla? (laughs) We can spend an hour talking about tortilla. It's my favorite thing to eat. Um, I make it at least twice a week for my kids. Yeah. And for those who don't know, tortilla... um, Tortilla de patatas or Spanish tortilla is how you can call it. Or in this case, red curry squash in Spanish. Yeah, I just made different variations um, just to be a little bit different. But it's uh, kind of like a hot dog in America. You know, it's what you eat when you go out. If you go to a tapas bar, a pincho bar in the Basque Country, um, that's where you're going to have when you go on a school outing your mom will probably pack a some baguette with tortilla in it um so it's kind of like our main um one of our baked foods and it's uh almost like a frittata but it's not baked so it's potatoes that are potatoes and onions that are slowly poached uh it's like between poaching and frying in olive oil and lots of olive oil and then they're poaching yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's good and then um and then they're whisked with eggs and made into this kind of pie that you have to flip. Uh, it's it's hard to explain. It's hard it's to very do simple too. to make. Well, I, I think it's very simple. You just have to know yeah. the point of the potatoes when you, they can't be too crispy. And they have to be diced. I see a lot of recipes with sliced potatoes, but that's not 
See, this is where the precision, this Basque precision comes from. <laughs> yeah. They have the Swiss watches, but I think they have Basque tortillas is on the level of how perfect it should be. Yeah, there's competitions. Um, that's our big tortilla competitions in the summertime are a big thing in the Basque country. I want to attend one of those. Yeah. There's lots of chocolate and cider yep. and tortilla. You have me at chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Eggs are a very important part of this book as well, yes. you know, uh, delivering protein. But you have things like clafouti. Uh, it's in a, some of the tarts. Um, are they a main source of everything for your diet? I, yeah, actually they are. <laughs> we probably go through four dozen eggs a week. Yeah, it's kind of crazy in our house. Yeah. Um, but probably even more, because I just bought some the other day, and I bought them again. Like, <laughs> Who's sneaking all yeah. those eggs? <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's a lot of recipe testing going on, but we eat eggs in the morning. Um, we eat a lot of tortilla. I make a lot of tarts. Um, yeah, we just like eggs. Yeah. And we, I have a, I have a farm... He, yeah, I don't know if he's a farmer. He he raises chickens, lots of chickens, and um, organic fed and free-range chickens. And they're very close to our house, so we buy our eggs from them, from yeah. Robert and Paula Ferris. I also love this idea of, I'm going back to Klafuti, because yes. it's such a fun word to say as well, um, that you have sweet and savory things, too, that would be traditionally one way or the other. So the clafouti, you have both a brown butter and candied apple version, and the chicken zucchini and gruyere. Um, so... It's just great to see that your mind plays both ways, even though you are a pastry chef and everyone thinks sweet, sweet, sweet. Because talking about Basque country food and you know this this very uh, precise ingredient, very pristine ingredient, it's more about that than it is about assembling this dish that has twenty, thirty layers of flavor. Yeah, and but it's interesting you say that, and I don't really think about it often. But in Basque cooking, savory, savory, and sweet is sweet. There's usually not a lot of, you know, like if you go to the south of Spain, they use cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves and savory dishes. But in the Basque country, you don't find that. So I think that's been an influence of later years of, you know, working for other people and tasting other people's foods and other countries' foods. But um, like you would never really see there's a recipe. Yeah, like the like the clafouti with chicken, you know, and zucchini, that probably wouldn't, that's not a very traditional Basque dish. That's kind of my interpretation of... Yeah, well, it's going to yeah. become a tradition in my house, <laughs> I can tell you that. It's really good. Yeah. Um, and the book is just stunning and beautiful. Well, thank you. You've, you've come a long way from lemon bars <laughs> in the hot, <laughs> hot, hot sun. I hope so. Outside of the book, um, people going out to eat... You know, you say a lot of restaurants use things that have gluten in them. I, I know myself because I had a slight gluten scare about a year ago that Mexican cuisine that are based in corn and corn flours are great. Are there any other cuisines that are primarily gluten-free? Um, I think Asian, except for soy sauce, but you can find, I mean, Vietnamese food and, but I think actually any cuisine i mean maybe you know you have pastas in italy and but any anytime you go to a restaurant where you know they're cooking from scratch you have a good chance of knowing you know you'll know what the food has and doesn't have and that's the those are the kinds of places that i i like going that i feel safe um it tends to be more of the fine dining you know aspect but um but yeah i think i mean 
Yeah, Germans use a lot of flour thickening. You know, it's hard yeah. to say. I, I can't go through all of them in my head, not right now. But um, well, I mean, are there things that you miss, or are there things oh, that things that I miss? You found that are better gluten free than they were with gluten. Well, I don't like super thick bechamel type based sauces. So I think I like things that are a little bit brothier and softer. Um, so I actually like making stews and you know when you don't have to dredge the meat in flour and um so i like i think i like things that are lighter anyway i I always have so um making cakes with more nut flours is great because it makes things that are really really moist um and so yeah i'm baking actually gluten-free baked goods can be very very moist and and they don't dry out as as much if you use nut flours and oils and they need a little bit more fat and protein obviously yeah but i mean you get the toastiness from roasted nuts which you wouldn't have otherwise too yeah yeah so you must get that extra bump of flavor by almost cooking gluten-free than you would just with a kind of dead flour yeah well there's a lot of gluten-free baked goods that are kind of bland and you know if you use all white rice flour it's not going to be very tasty but so blending flours is a blending flours is really good you know using maybe something that's a little bit more neutral i like super fine brown rice flour as a little bit of a base in a in a flour mix and then i like to add things that have you know more they're heartier and more flavor and robust like buckwheat or teff or Millet is, you know, softer, but um, chestnut flour I love, and I use it even in the summer with peaches. Like if you make a like an upside down peach cake nice. with chestnut yeah. flour, is amazing. Um, yeah, what else do I use? Quinoa. Quinoa. Quinoa is quinoa is obviously great for savory foods, but when you make uh, sweet sweet cakes with or cookies with quinoa, it actually almost takes away the the sweetness because i don't like things that are overly sweet so it adds balance and i i really i really like quinoa and, and sweet treats too yeah well as part of a new balanced diet gluten-free and this book is going to be and already is in my book uh, an essential guide to doing that because it's not just eliminating flavor it's adding and building new flavor profiles which are just tremendous so oh. congratulations well, thank you i'm glad yeah, you think so definitely. yeah and for me i you know when when we set out to do this book um it was really important it, like having gluten-free on the title wasn't even a thought really um to us it was more making when i say to us it was uh, my editor michael sand and myself it was really about making a beautiful book um with lots of flavor and using gluten-free flours, uh, like you said, to make more robust and flavorful and more texture um, in baked goods. And, you know, just eating simple, um, but adding a touch maybe of sophistication, and but still simple recipes that we eat all the time at home. Yeah, I mean, so. truthfully, if uh, it didn't say gluten-free on the cover, I wouldn't know. And I don't care because <laughs> it's gorgeous and it's delicious. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for being on the show. Uh, check out Aran's new book, Small Plate Sweet Treats, her website, Canela Canel. And uh, come back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org every Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Thank 
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Heritage Radio Network is now on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.